Turo is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace. With Turo, you can book any car you want, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. Browse a huge selection of vehicles for just about any occasion or budget. Book an SUV or minivan for a family road trip, a pickup truck for some errands, or even test drive an EV. Every trip is backed by liability insurance. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Find your drive. Forget boring rental cars at Turo.com. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. So um, there's a lot of pressure to just force somebody to confess, uh, whether that be by um, certainly psychological torture uh, and lies and tricks and games and pressure um, or more uh, even more tougher measures than that, including stories I've heard it certainly didn't happen to me or physical torture and also um, blackmail by arresting somebody's family members, seizing their assets, this kind of thing. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse. They are the go-to agency for any organisation with digital needs. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. A quick heads up that our Humans of Purpose Experience Survey is still open for you to tell us how to improve the podcast. Just hit the link in our show notes to submit your entry and the first 50 entrants will win an exclusive Humans of Purpose brand collab with Memo Bottle worth over $40 per reusable bottle. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Kylie Moore-Gilbert. Kylie is an academic and expert focusing on the Middle East and has covered some of its most brutal uprisings and revolutions. Kylie has had quite an incredible journey, which most recently included imprisonment in Iran on a charge of espionage. Kylie thought she would be going on a short working holiday to Iran to attend a conference and do some sightseeing and ended up being detained there for two years and three months. The charges against Kylie were never substantiated and the Australian government has rejected the charges as baseless and politically motivated. Since Kylie's return to Australia, she has been busy writing her first book, which will be her memoirs about the years she spent in prison in Iran. Her book is due for release through Ultimo Press in April 2022. Kylie hasn't done much media or speaking since the return, so I was thrilled that she joined me to record this. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, but we spend the bulk of our time talking about the history of Iran, what is happening in Iran on the ground today, human rights issues emerging in the Middle East and globally, the heinous practices of false confessions and hostage diplomacy, and what is happening globally and locally to contribute to better human rights protections. At times in this conversation, you may wonder why I don't veer into certain areas with Kylie. This is an important part of being a responsible podcaster and host and respecting the sensitivity of Kylie's story and situation. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kylie as much as I did. So I am absolutely thrilled to be here in person with Kylie Moore Gilbert. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's an absolute thrill and a pleasure. I'm so happy you responded to my email. I, I was surprised and and uh, very happy. Yeah, so great to have you here. Um, your story is just nothing short of amazing, uh, what you've been able to do, what you've achieved in your life, what's happened in the past few years. I think a good place to start would be just to go back a little while um, to to hear your story and hear, hear what drew you to Iran and hear what drew you to your, your specialty and your academic interests too. Um, I'm not an academic specialist in Iran by any means. Um, I've never published anything on Iran. I never really studied Iran as a student. Um, my area is Middle Eastern politics. Uh, I've been studying the Middle East since my undergraduate degree at the University of Cambridge, uh, which I completed in Middle Eastern studies. Uh, and that the main focus of that was languages as well as, um, you know, history, politics, linguistics. Um, it was an area studies degree. So that's how I got into it. But it was much more focused on um, the Arab world and Israel. So... I um, did my PhD at the University of Melbourne on the Shia community in Bahrain and uh, especially looking at shifts and changes within the political participation of the Shia community after the Arab Spring um, attempted revolution of 2011. So uh, that is where I started to focus on Shia Islam in particular. And obviously if you're looking at Shia Islam, you can't really avoid looking at Iran 
And um, I was invited to attend an academic seminar in Iran in 2018 held by an Iranian university. And for me, you know, I'd always wanted to visit the country. I've traveled extensively in the Middle East and I thought it was a great opportunity just for a few weeks to, to head off to Iran and um, attend this seminar and uh, do a little bit of travel and uh, interview a few people for a very small research project that I had uh, running at the University of Melbourne. That's um, the reason I went to Iran and honestly, um, I thought I was just heading there for a couple of weeks and it would be a sort of a working holiday for me and then I'd come back and continue on my way. Um, and uh, as you know, it didn't really work out that way and I spent uh, two years and three months in prison, in largely in Evin prison in Tehran and also in Khachak uh, public prison south of Tehran. And so you've been back for a little while now? Yeah, uh, I was released at the end of November last year, so... Um, Nine months, almost eight months or so. So crazy, crazy, crazy time. I mean, what was the process of getting authorization to go to Iran like? Was that difficult? It was a process from the university side of things, um, getting approval for my travel and for my research. The process in terms of applying for a visa and, and that kind of thing was very simple and very easy. I just applied for a tourist visa um, with the Iranian embassy in Canberra and was accepted and, and given the visa. So, you know, Australia's historically had pretty good relations with Iran comparative to other Western countries. So um, I think there's even a visa on arrival option for Australians. Wow, really? Yeah. Um, I'd love to go. Uh, I mean, you know, after hearing your experience, maybe a bit less, but uh, <laughs> incredible country. It is an incredible country and I would love to go back there. There's so much there I, I want to see. I have so many friends there now, you know. Inshallah, as they say in Iran, this regime will fall or will reform itself to the extent that people like me in the end and people like you would feel safe going there. You've talked a bit about the air of paranoia that exists within Iran, within the government, also the uh, Revolutionary Guard. Um, has it always been a hostile environment for academics and, and journalists uh, who aren't in Iran? Like, sorry, who aren't from Iran? Um, I would say yes, in terms of this regime, um, a bit over 40 years now since this um Islamist regime came into power in Iran in the 1979 revolution, certainly for um, researchers or journalists, um, Iranians and foreigners, it's a very unpredictable, capricious sort of regime. Um, I didn't know much of this before I went, but uh, certainly being a journalist or something like that in Iran, whether you are a journalist for the Iranian uh, state broadcaster, which is the only authorised um, domestic a media organization in the country or whether you're one of the few foreigners who's allowed to operate in Iran legally with a permit as a journalist I imagine it's extremely challenging yeah and and what about the regime if you can just talk a little bit about the Khomeini to uh, Ali Khamenei I can't get the names right but it's you know okay. what I mean yeah I know uh, what you that, mean <laughs> that sort of succession and that regime and, and what it represents and sort of how it's um really corrupted and repressed a lot of people in Iran. Yeah, you have to look back at the Iranian Revolution of 1979 and talking to people in Iran, everybody has a story of that revolution, whether it be their own experience or their parents' experience or even their grandparents' experience. Um, you know, I heard so many incredible stories, incredible in the sense of unbelievable as well as amazing and um, shocking. Um you know, Iran, like many other places in the Middle East, had an authoritarian regime prior to the revolution uh, in the form of a monarchy, absolute monarch, the Shah. Um, the, then um, this revolution started off as an uprising against, um, you know, for a number of diverse reasons, triggered by a number of diverse grievances, led by a number of diverse groups, often with conflicting interests. One of those groups was um, the the clerics and the religious uh, followers of those clerics, led by Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, who was outside Iran. He'd been exiled from the 1960s onwards by the Shah for um, political sermons that he was giving against the Shah's regime, denouncing it as un-Islamic. 
and um, was expelled. He went to Iraq and spent most of his time in Najaf, which is one of the main um, Shia centers of learning in Iraq. And um, following pressure, six months before the revolution, was expelled from Iraq and went to France. And then um, after the uprising began in Iran, made this grand return to Iran from France um, and there are those famous pictures of him arriving on an Air France jet into Tehran and being sort of welcomed by, you know, gazillions of followers. Um, so he became the kind of lightning rod and the figurehead of the revolution and a whole diverse set of different groups fell into line behind him initially in order to overthrow the Shah. But, you know, groups from, you know, communists and um, secularists and people who wanted democracy in Iran, people who wanted communist regime in Iran, uh, to um, hardline Islamists, and obviously we know that's sort of a, a marriage of convenience that doesn't usually end well. Um, <laughs> Never. And no, and it didn't. So um, you had these groups battling it out after the Shah had left and the Islamists led by Khomeini emerging on top. Um, and then very soon after you had Saddam Hussein's Iraq invade Iran, which basically solidified the support of the people behind this sort of fledgling regime, which a lot of people didn't necessarily support its its vision for the country prior to that. But given this existential threat of an invasion, um, they had to essentially, you know, defend their country against this external aggressor. So they largely fell into line behind Khomeini in the face of a much greater threat, which was the external threat from Iraq. Uh, and during the war, um, Khomeini and his supporters consolidated their grip on power. Um, they eliminated a lot of rivals. They eliminated uprisings in provinces like Kurdistan, uh, which, um, you know, didn't want to be part of a Khomeinist Iran and had always had a strong independent current um, to it. So there was a lot of internal consolidation happening in the context of this existential crisis of, of war and having to defend their territory against Saddam. And um, the war lasted eight years, and by the time it was over, um, they were very much firmly in power. Maybe it's a good time to just talk a bit about the different um, sects of Islam, like Sunni and Shia, mm -hmm. um, and how that kind of impacts the geopolitics of the region um, with, with Iran in mind. So prior to the Iranian Revolution, the sectarian schism in Islam wasn't necessarily a, a major fault line in the Middle East. Certainly um, you had more secular movements, nationalist movements, pan-Arabists in the Arab world, um, and divisions, and even Islam itself and viewing the world from the perspective of religion wasn't um, an extremely popular ideology at the time. But the Iranian Revolution changed everything, and one of the main tenets of Khomeini in the revolution was to export it to neighbouring countries, export it throughout the region, in particular to those Shia majority areas, whether that be a Shia majority country or countries like Lebanon that had a sizable Shia minority, largely located within one geographic area, uh, export the ideology of the revolution. And that was a religious ideology, which was firmly rooted in Shiism, specifically Shiism. Uh, the justification for Khomeini positioning himself as essentially the authoritarian ruler of Iran was um, a religious justification, a Shia justification. And that's the, the concept of Velatefari, which is the guardianship of the jurist, the idea that a supreme leader, a sort of pope-like political leader who must be recognized as a supreme religious authority, um, like an ayatollah, um, but also has this non-religious political element to his leadership. This whole concept was justified within um, Shia theology and was reinvented by Khomeini very much so. And a lot, even to this day, a lot of non-Iranian religious scholars within the Shia world dispute the authenticity of this and, and see it as an innovation. So it was always couched in religious terms. and. Um, this schism then deepened as a result of Iran's activities and as a result of the growing trend of Islamism throughout the, the Muslim world, so Sunni Islamism as well. And um, the more radical Sunni Islamists obviously do not view Shia as being legitimate Muslims. 
and you know the most radical among them you know we see these views amongst al-qaeda and isis etc see them as apostates um, people who've actually diverged from islam to the extent that they've left islam and therefore should be killed so you had uh, extremism on both sides um and that resulted in uh, growing sectarianism between sunni and shia and sectarian violence in the parts of the world that saw um, large groups of both uh, communities living uh, alongside each other. And um, what what would you say is the the, the religious difference between uh, the beliefs of the Shia and, and the Sunni? Um, a lot of it is pra- differences in practice, but it dates back to the secession, the debate over the secession of the Prophet Muhammad after his death. Um, the the Sunnis believed in the concept of shura, of sort of community consultation and within the community electing the person who is most suited to be leader, um, khalifa or you know, the successor, um, the caliph in English. And uh, the Shia believe in this kind of esoteric passing down of knowledge or understanding of religious knowledge present in the bloodline of the prophet in particular the bloodline passing through his daughter Fatima, uh, who married Ali, um, who was his both his son-in-law and his cousin and one of the main figures of, of his, all for all Muslims within the, the story of Islam. Um, so um, what my point there was, I guess it started off as a difference of opinion over leadership and then um, as time passed and historical events like uh, the killing of the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad Hussein, uh, the son of Ali and Fatima, uh, by representatives of the Sunni Caliph, which was at that time based in Damascus. These kinds of events just furthered the schism. And um, as time passed, the theological underpinnings for each sect diverged further. And you saw this this understanding amongst the 12 are Shia because there are many types of Shia and the majority sect of Shia within Shiism are called 12 are Shia because they believe in 12 imams, 12 successors to the Prophet who ha- have this special understanding of the Islamic religion and of the Quran uh, that regular everyday people don't possess. Um, so they stop at 12 and they believe that the 12th uh, Imam has gone into occultation, so he hasn't died. He's removed himself from this world and he will return at the end of days. This is their belief. And so with each generation of Imam and the Imamate being passed from father to son, other than um, between brothers in the case of the second and third, Hassan and Hussein, um, y- you know, you had you have hadith sayings of these each of these Imams preserved uh, and they would often make religious rulings or issue verdicts about different issues. And this would uh, see greater divergence, theologically speaking, between the way that the Shia and the way that the Sunnis practice their religion. But both sects believe in, you know, the five tenets of Islam and, mm-hmm. and the Quran and its um, perfection and in Muhammad's prophethood and that he's the last of the prophets and in the day of judgment and all of these basic tenets of Islam. But they do have some um, important theological differences and a lot of difference in terms of practice, the way they practice their religion. What's been the impact of having an Ayatollah-like supreme figure in a, in a pretty big country on um, like the legal system and the general protection of human rights of the population? Um, certainly in terms of the legal system, we saw efforts to combine Islamic law, Sharia law, and um, the, the Shia version of Sharia law, 12 the Shia version of Sharia law, um, Jafari law, uh, with secular laws that did not contradict the Islamic teachings that existed prior to the revolution. Uh so anything that did contradict was was thrown out, in particular in relation to women's rights, rights of religious minorities, this kind of thing. Um, you know, you had female judges in Iran prior to the revolution. They lost their jobs, obviously. <laughs> Women cannot be judges um, under Islam. 
And uh, actually a lot of the judges in Iran are, are still to this day clerics themselves. So you had a merging of uh, re- religious and secular law, but the religious obviously always dominated when there was a conflict between the two. And um, you had a sort of a, unfortunately, a backward step on a lot of matters of, of human rights, women's rights, minority rights, rights for um, homosexuals. Uh, you had very much a deliberalization of the legal code in alignment with Islamic norms uh, as a result of this this revolution. What's it like um, in Iran for other minority groups? Like, do they have um, a Christian's sort of freedom of practice there without persecution and, and Jewish people also? So under the constitution of Iran after the revolution, um, some Christian communities and the Jewish community and the Zoroastrian community are protected legally and recognised and they're given um, each a seat in parliament and the Christians have several seats divided amongst um, Armenians and and Catholics, etc. But these are communities that are recognised as always having been Christian. Turo is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace. With Turo, you can book any car you want, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. Browse a huge selection of vehicles for just about any occasion or budget. Book an SUV or minivan for a family road trip, a pickup truck for some errands, or even test drive an EV. Every trip is backed by liability insurance. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Find your drive. Forget boring rental cars at Turo.com. If you're an Iranian convert out of Islam to any other religion, uh, that is forbidden. And there are, you know... That's apostasy, isn't it? Yes, uh, technically punishable by death. And um, the community in Iran that's most uh, persecuted, the religious community, are the Baha'is, who are an um, offshoot, offshoot from the 1900s um, from Islam with a new religious book and um, re-envisioning the world in a very different way um, from the way that uh, the regime sees the world, they obviously are classified as apostates and are very heavily persecuted Mm. and often targeted. And you would meet people in prison who were simply there because of their religion. They were just rounded up and thrown in prison for being Baha'is. And so is there a big exile community here of Baha'is? I don't know how large it is, but there's certainly a lot of Baha'is, yeah, um, in Western countries because they're given sanctuary. People convert to Baha'ism too, I believe, but they're given sanctuary certainly um, as political refugees. And in terms of some of the degradation of the fundamental, like, you know, Western legal precepts, um, such as evidentiary law, etc., um, you've got things happening in Iran, like um, people being forced into giving false confessions. Can you talk a little bit about that phenomenon and sort of how that played out for, for yourself and anyone you know? I mean, this is False confessions are obviously not, uh, you know, as in every Middle Eastern country, there is the law, the codified law of the land, and then there is how stuff works, how things operate. And false confessions have got nothing to do with the law per se. It's just a practice that unfortunately has developed. Um, It probably, to be honest, pre-existed the revolution because Savak, the security services of the Shah, were also notorious for torturing people and this kind of thing. I was actually kept in a former Savak um, detention centre, which had just simply been converted from Savak to the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Security Services um, detention centre, and they probably continued the same practices there that the Shah's uh, Savak was doing before. So um, it's really more of the same. Uh, the forced confessions thing, I think it's easier to convict somebody uh, if they've made a confession. The burden of evidence is much less. I guess, um, not that they particularly care about sticking to the letter of the law anyway in, in half of these courts, especially the security courts in Iran. So um, there's a lot of pressure to just force somebody to confess, uh, whether that be by um, certainly psychological torture uh, and lies and tricks and games and pressure um, or more, uh, even more tougher measures than that, including Stories I've heard, it certainly didn't happen to me, of physical torture and also um, blackmail by arresting somebody's family members, seizing their assets, this kind of thing. Um, And once you've made a false confession, it's quite hard to retract that. 
you can try to retract it, but it doesn't matter. It's often too late. I mean, everybody tries to retract it, I believe, once they realize what's in store for them. Um, but the judiciary, they just, you know, they need any, any old excuse, really. So They've this, decided this is what, not like a traditional plea bargain where you get a reduced sentence for confessing. It's more like you confess and then you get the worst possible outcome. I mean, they, they tell you all sorts of lies, right? right? Like I have friends who made false confessions and under all sorts of unimaginable pressure. But they they bring they go to the extent of doctoring fake documents saying if you give a if you confess, look, I have this document signed by the supreme leader, it's your pardon. You know, or look, this is a commutation of your sentence. We'll let you out on bail and um you won't have to we'll let you out on good behavior. You won't have to attend jail um if you just confess. So they'll doctor documents, they'll tell you all sorts of stories, they'll make you believe that confessing is the easiest way out for you. Um, this is one of their tactics. This is the the carrot and the stick is obviously psychological torture, arresting your family members, harassing, you know, your mother, your elderly parents, whatever, um, seizing your assets, all sorts of anything that they can, any way they can see to put pressure on you. Were you aware that it was going to be like that? Or is this, is sort of that something you just learn through experience? I, I had no idea about these things. I mean, so even when I was in there, I didn't know. It was only tales I'd heard from other prisoners that um, enlightened me to it. Certainly before I was arrested, before I went to run, I'd never even thought about the phenomenon of, you know, false confessions or any of this. I'd never considered in a million years that that would happen to me. So you've been put in this incredible position as sort of a human rights advocate and champion in a way, um, given what you've experienced. I don't know if I'd describe myself as that, but certainly I feel I have a moral duty to stand up for the innocent people who became my friends, my sisters, people who went out of their way to help me at great risk to themselves when I was in prison. I have a duty to stand up for them, to advocate for their freedom and to draw attention to what's happening. Are you able to kind of separate the difficult period that you had in Iran and the repressive authority from your love of the general population and the friends that you made there quite easily? Oh, most definitely, without question. Um, I never once had a, any negative feeling my whole life toward the people of Iran. The people of Iran are amazing. I thought this before I was arrested during my the, the couple of weeks I spent in Iran on the outside and it only drove, uh, you know, furthered um, that, that feeling only deepened for me when I was arrested and received help and assistance from not only other prisoners but sometimes even the Revolutionary Guards themselves, sometimes from the most unexpected of quarters. And the, the Iranian people are just lovely, wonderful, warm-hearted, caring, kind people. Unfortunately, they're ruled by some very, um, how do I say it, they're ruled by a regime that is the exact opposite of that. And I still don't understand how that is possible, how such a beautiful country and such wonderful people gave birth to such a repressive and um, merciless authoritarian regime. On the future of the people and the potential to um, someday escape this horrible, corrupt regime, we've seen lots of uprisings in different parts of the, the Arab world and the Middle East. Um why do you think that hasn't happened in Iran? Well, it has happened many times. It just hasn't resulted in regime change, uh, you know, most notably in 2009. Um, but since then, every couple of years, there is, even now we have uh, mass street protests in Iran. But, you know, when I was in prison at the end of 2019, there was significant protests. Prior to that, 2017, there were significant protests Right now we're seeing Khuzestan, uh, which is the Arab uh, majority province on the border with Iraq, which is where most of Iran's oil is located. Uh, the people there for a number of weeks now have been taking to the streets and getting shot with live fire simply because they're demanding water to drink because all the water's dried up. It's all been diverted um, to other parts of the country because there's a water crisis all over Iran. Um, it's long, you know, a long history of mismanagement of the resources by the government, by the regime, and corruption obviously has plays a big role in that too. That's led to Khuzestan not even having enough water to drink and 
for going on the streets and demanding this basic human right, they're getting shot at by the regime. The regime has become more and more brutal. You know, if you saw the way that they behaved and reacted in 2009 when um, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was uh, supposedly re-elected to office, but most people say that the election was stolen and he was manoeuvred into into that role um, through electoral fraud, um, triggering mass protests. Uh, if you saw that that they were cracked down upon very brutally, but not from the first day. You know, the regime wanted to be seen to be humane and to take the people's concerns seriously and to consider their demands and, um, you know, crack down on the more extreme protesters, but then try and bring the others back into the fold. Now we're just seeing from day one live fire with bullets. You know, the, the regime is so threatened now. The situation in Iran really is teetering because you've got COVID, which is a massive crisis in Iran. Um it's the number one country in the Middle East for uh, COVID cases. Mm. And they've just dropped the ball completely on it. It's just, you know, there's no real vaccination drive, the mismanagement, the corruption, the inexcusable ideologically driven bans on Western vaccines have really, really hit um, the, the people to the extent that, you know, they've just had this long-running crisis from... The, the you know when it when it started in the rest of the world the beginning of 2020 Iran was one of the first places it spread to to the city of Rome they were digging mass graves in Rome um, you know back in March 2020 and it just has been unrelenting since then mm. and I have friends in Iran who've told me we just can't get vaccines people are traveling to Armenia paying thousands and thousands of dollars which in Iran is just, you know, that people don't have money these days to go to other countries to get vaccines, to bribe their way into getting any vaccine they can because all of, you know, their elderly relatives are, are dying. They're all, everybody's threatened. They're in hospital. Uh, some A friend of mine, um, somebody I know's father died last week in ICU in Tehran. Um, now the Delta variant's hit there and it's just completely out of control and they don't have proper access to vaccines. They have an Iranian vaccine apparently now that oh, the God. government's trying to forcibly inject Always people with. Always a bad with. time when these countries come up with their own vaccines. Oh, I mean, they were promoting a Cuban vaccine. I oh, mean, had you, had you heard of a Cuban vaccine? Oh, I don't think Cuba has the infrastructure. <laughs> they've oh, they've got a Cuban vaccine, an Iranian vaccine, yep. and they had the, the Chinese vaccine, but that's not even widely available. The Chinese and the Russian one you can get your hands on, um, but it's very difficult. You have to pay a lot of money and bribe and it's not. Um, widely available to the regular Iranian person. So that is just, that is just wild to hear. Um, absolutely wild. Is part of the opposition to the vaccine a because they they're seen as Western manufactured products? Is that why they're kind of not widely distributed? Yeah, there's um, well, the Supreme Leader issued a fatwa against uh, the Western produced vaccines, although he's widely considered himself to have taken Pfizer. <laughs> Um, and all of the top brass, all of the top brass, they they had um, like I think a hundred thousand doses of Pfizer or something from somewhere, just for the and, guard and the top elites. Yes, yeah. and their families, and you know, they, these guys are all vaccinated and were long ago vaccinated. The supreme leader, um, even when I was in Iran, um, I think just before my release, appeared on TV without a mask and not socially distancing and this kind of thing. Like it, it was clear he'd been vaccinated because before that, I remember this time last year, in, it's the month of Muharram now, which is the, the sort of holy Shia month, and they have cer religious ceremonies every night leading up to Ashura. And um, you saw the Supreme Leader on TV sitting on his own in this vast chamber, you know, and you had the, the man whose job it was um, – to make the sort of religious chanting and, and, and sing the religious chants for uh, Muharram sitting 50 metres away from him. And he had this 50-metre social distancing thing going on and, and then suddenly, snap, he's not even wearing a mask. So he was clearly vaccinated. It's wild. Um, I want to ask you about hostage diplomacy in Iran and, and sure. what that means. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, hostage diplomacy is a term that's being coined, I guess, to describe this growing phenomenon, uh, not just undertaken by Iran, but by other states to China, most notably, uh, of taking citizens of foreign countries or dual nationals 
um, hostage, kidnapping them, putting them in prison, like what happened to me. It's it's not a new phenomenon. And um, demanding something in exchange from that foreign government, whether that be a prisoner swap. Uh, and just yesterday we heard, um, you know, that the Chinese have sentenced a Canadian to death um, and it's seen to be a tit-for-tat thing um, or p- perhaps a bargaining chip because of that um, Huawei oh, I remember that. executive yep. in Canada who's it, been arrested. detained and then given to the US. Yes, yep. yes, fighting extradition mm. to the US. And so, you know, this is just seen as a way of getting what they want in terms of perhaps a prisoner swap from Canada for that woman or putting more pressure on them at least. So there's that or there's just simple money. I mean, the Iranians in the past have got lots of money or sanctions relief or assets um unfrozen in exchange for prisoners. So it's basically just using people as bargaining chips politically. Yes, um, and to get something from that country, and it pays dividends. This is a problem and this is why it's a growing phenomenon in Iran, in China, in other countries, Myanmar. We have a, an Australian economist currently in Myanmar since the, um, the junta staged another coup a few months ago um, who's been taken. And um, Russia, there's a few there too. Uh, and, you know, it works. They always get what they want. And unfortunately, there hasn't been up until recently much interest on the part of the sort of like-minded Western countries to collaborate on this issue and and try to find a mechanism under international law, for example, to try and tackle it. Uh, Even the UN Treaty on hostage-taking doesn't even cover state-based hostage-taking. It's only non-state actors, you know, criminal groups, mafia gangs, whatever. It doesn't, you know, even apply when a country takes somebody hostage. Yeah, it seems like a pretty big gap in the legislation. <laughs> Very big. And it obviously needs to be, you know, revised. Does this lead us to a talk about Magnitsky? Yeah, yeah. Um, Magnitsky sanctions are one way in which um, not just hostage diplomacy but human rights abuses in general uh, can be addressed by individual countries and by individuals within countries. The difference uh, between just sort of applying sanctions to entire states that abuse human rights like North Korea or Iran or whatever um, and Magnitsky sanctions is that Magnitsky is targeting specific individuals who commit human rights abuses or um, acts of corruption within uh, those states. So, for example, if I knew the names, and I do know the names of some um, of individuals in the Iranian regime who are responsible for my illegal detention, uh, I could um, hopefully, if Australia passes Magnitsky sanctions into law, uh, submit those names for consideration by the government and hopefully lobby to have those individuals sanctioned uh, by the Australian government and by other governments for those human rights abuses. Uh, and when I say sanctioned, I mean asset freezes and travel bans. Often it's symbolic. Yeah. You know, these yeah. guys aren't really – some of them are travelling outside Iran, definitely. It's but, hard to imagine many Iranian high-level officials like desperately wanting to travel back and forth to Australia though. So that might be one situation where it's it's not as useful. Yeah. Uh, in the case of Australia, you know, a lot of them send their children here to study. All oh, right. Or they did prior to COVID. Mm. Um, you know, Australia is, I think, the number one destination in the Western world for Iranian students. Uh, so a lot come here. Uh, and we don't know if they have assets here. Often through family members who come here to study, they are able to send money here. And, you know, often it's corrupt money gained you know, through corrupt practices that then they siphon off and send abroad. Certainly, you know, the US was the first country to pass Magnitsky legislation and um, I think it would have a much more powerful impact in the US and Europe than Australia given just the sheer volume of assets and um, the the travel and, and family connections of Iranians linked to the regime in those places. But I think Australia has a role to play and it's certainly symbolic, even naming and shaming these people, having them on a list, Mm. having them on a a sanctions list. For them, it would be a badge of honour. You know, the judge in my court used to brag about being specifically sanctioned by the US for (laughs) extrajudicial killings, can you imagine, (laughs) bragging rights, you know. Um, But practically speaking, some of these people are not publicly known. Their names aren't known within Iran as being perpetrators of human rights abuses, unless they're a politician or a famous judge or something, um, they just go about their day-to-day lives and their family members might not even know what they do. So naming them does have an impact and certainly it stops them from being able to leave the country. 
So I do think it, it is an important um, mechanism that can be employed and I really, really hope that the Australian Parliament passes this into legislation. Yeah, so at the moment it's kind of in a paused state since 2020, as I understand it. It hasn't quite got up yet. Yeah, um, last week Maurice Payne announced that she was tabling a bill. So there has been some movement recently, but, um, yeah, basically a report recommended that Australia adopt Magnitsky legislation um, and it's been on Maurice Payne's desk for quite some time and they now seem to be making a move on it. But what sort of form it would take? I think there's some dispute in Australia surrounding who gets to determine which names go on the list, whether it be an independent. I think the, the initial report recommended an independent commission or body be created for that, but the government wants to have the final say and I think now it's the, the government, the bill the government wants to put forward involves the foreign minister um, having a list of names and being able to vet the list. Okay, interesting. So obviously, political and yeah. diplomatic considerations are going to come into play, and you know you can't say I'm going to sanction Xi Jinping or something because then the diplomats are going to say no. Yeah. That's probably not a constructive act. I was going to um, say the Chinese uh, high-ranking Communist Party officials probably not going to be Magnitsky listed anytime soon. No, no. Um, so it's not based on. Well, I was going to say merit, but it's the exact opposite of that. Dismerit. You know, yeah, dismerit. Unmerit. Demerit. <laughs> demerit. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about, I mean, beyond the repressiveness of the Iranian regime on their own people, what is Iran's role in sort of being a proxy for terror terrorism funding in, in the region? Um, unfortunately, it's a growing role. This is part of the doctrine of spreading the revolution. Uh, it can be spread by violent means as well as nonviolent ideological means. And we know, obviously, that Iran is funding a number of non-state or semi-state uh, terror organizations in the Middle East, uh, including, obviously, Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, um, Hamas and Islamic Jihad in, in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, then we have Ansar Allah, who are known as the Houthis in Yemen, who are slightly different. They're five a Shia, not 12 a Shia, so they're a different type of Shia. So Iran isn't necessarily spreading its religious ideology uh, to Yemen. It's more of a marriage of convenience. Mm. Um, and, you know, there is certainly some alignment in the way that they see the world. And the, um, you know, Ansar Allah are fighting Saudi Arabia, which is one of, and UAE, which are um, Iran's main adversaries. So it makes sense, you know, my enemy's enemy. Um, then we also have some groups in Bahrain and obviously a lot of groups in Iraq as well, um, Ashta Shabi, et cetera. Um, you have Hezbollah in Iraq too. Um, you know, so Ashta Shabi is basically the Basij of Iraq, the popular mobilization committees which filter through into the Revolutionary Guards um, in Iran. So these were set up during the Iran-Iraq war. So you've got sort of parallel groups being set up by the Iranians in many neighboring countries. Um, and, you know, obviously they're heavily involved in the war in Syria as well. Um, so they're spreading their influence, they're growing their sphere of influence, and um, often that involves um, funding for terror organisations, mm -hmm. which the Iranian people don't like. I mean, mm -hmm. even now in Khuzestan in the streets you see people um, chanting um, that, you know, we don't, we're not interested in, in Lebanon or Gaza, we want... Iran to be for Iranians and we want our money to stay in Iran, our oil, money. Our, why are we we sending millions and millions of uh, precious um, dollars or, or rials or tumans to these Arab countries that have nothing to do with us and that owe us nothing and we don't owe them anything when our people are starving, when our people don't have enough to eat or don't have jobs or don't have COVID vaccines, why are we funding these guys? Mm. And this is a common uh, gripe amongst the regular Iranian people on the street. I have two questions. It's a two-part question, really. What can general people do who might be listening to the podcast to support the people of Iran and, and not the regime? And how are you going about it in terms of championing um, the, the rights of the people in Iran and also calling out what, what the regime is doing? Gosh, that's a really difficult one to answer. What can ordinary people do? What can I do? I don't even know. Every, you want to do something. Um, I'm on a very small level trying to support my friends and their families. Uh, but I'm trying to, you know, through Twitter, but that's just activism really, just, you know, promoting and drawing attention to the human rights abuses and other, 
you know, stuff coming out of Iran on a daily basis, but that's not really making any contribution or any real meaningful difference. I think calling on our governments to adopt legislation like Magnitsky and then actively sanction some of these guys who are, you know, masterminding these abuses. We have a trial in Sweden right now of um, somebody who was a member of one of the death commissions in the 1988 um, mass killings of political prisoners that happened in Iran. This man voluntarily travelled to Europe and was arrested, not thinking that he would be linked or that he was known, was arrested in Sweden and is now being tried for war crimes. And um, this is a really important case because um, it's the first time an Iranian official will be brought, hopefully brought to justice for participation in that atrocity. So this kind of thing is really important because it sends a symbolic message to the people in Iran that they're not forgotten. Um, and this is really important to people who are in prison, political prisoners, um, people like Nasrin Sutudeh, who's very well known outside of Iran. Um, I knew her when I was in Khachak prison briefly, and she was a friend of mine. And I know it's important to her that the voices of people who've been through and suffered these human rights abuses, people who've gone to prison for their beliefs, um, like Nasrin Sutudeh, are being heard still and aren't forgotten. It gives them strength to keep fighting. You have so many brave, amazing, courageous people in Iran. I'm always amazed by their courage in that over 40 years of repression and violence used by this regime against them, they still take to the streets and stand up for what they believe in. And they make beautiful art also. Like the, the Iranian film has been one of my favourite like regions of film ever mm -hmm. globally. It's just incredible. Rich stories of people, you know, enjoying life, being grateful, helping others. Mm. Um, a lot of great romantic stories, a lot of interesting tales of like civilian um, clergy clashing uh, mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing and the implications, but truly yeah. like a, a fascinating land, a fascinating people. Um, what, is, what is on the horizon for you? I, I believe you've got a book in the works. Yeah, I'm currently writing a book about my experiences in Iran, which will come out next year at some point. It's being published by Ultimo Press. Um, I'm still writing. I'm just writing away, doing a bit of a brain dump at the moment, just trying to get everything um, into a big word doc. It's blowing well out beyond the um, the word limit that it's supposed to be. It's going to be kind of two or three books that I'm going to have to cut in half and whittle down into being one. But I hope it'll be an interesting read um, and I'll be able to shine a light on some of these issues too that we've discussed. And will you tell your whole story there? Is that the intention or just parts? Well, my intention was to tell my whole story, but after starting to write it, I realised if I want to tell my whole story, it really is going to be two or three books. So um, it will be excerpts of my story, the most interesting parts, I hope, uh, hopefully held together by some sort of logical, rational thread, um, which I hope I will find or will emerge. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very much a work in progress right now, but I'm writing hard and I'm hoping to finish the first draft by the end of the year. How do you, like, as somebody, I've never written a book before, but how do you go about it? What's your writing rhythm and style? Do you kind of just like for two hours lock in and then take a walk and get back in or? I should be more disciplined like that. I'm a procrastinator, so I normally write at night. I, I've really discovered lately that the days are just write-offs, excuse the pun. Um, I, there's no point really me trying to force myself to write in the morning because I just procrastinate. But at night, um, for some reason, I get it together and I sit and do sort of a decent solid block of several hours where I just sit down and write and write and write. When, on a good day, I'll write like three, 4,000 words. On a bad day, maybe 500 to 1,000. Are you removed enough from it? Like is it traumatic for you to, to write about certain parts of your story? Um, sometimes it is. I didn't think it would be, but a couple of times I have felt that it affected me. But then after I got it out on the page, I was able to distance myself from it because I felt like I downloaded it from my memories onto my computer, essentially, um, onto the page. And that actually was healing and helped me move on from that incident or whatever it was I was recounting. So the moment, like in the moment when I'm actually writing about it, sometimes it does upset me. But once I finished it and moved on from it, I felt that within my own mind, I've been able to move on from it too. So in that sense, um, it's been quite therapeutic. And my, my last question is kind of a weird one, but I mean, what's it been like coming out of a pretty constrained environment in Iran to lockdown in Victoria? Oh my God. I mean, yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. It's, it's, 
I just want to enjoy my freedom. And I'm just slowly, slowly readjusting to normal life again. And I want to see my friends, my family. My family are largely in New South Wales, so, you know, obviously I can't see them and God knows when I'll be able to. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a shame in that it is certainly nothing like being in prison, but any constraint on your freedom um, after coming out of an experience like I had in Iran is um, it's not a setback, but I feel like I'm not, I feel like my recovery is kind of on hold whilst I'm in lockdown. I'm not going backwards, but I'm not going forwards either. I'm just. Um, We're all in suspended animation a little bit. Basically, yes. Like everyone else. Like, like everyone, everyone else. else. Yeah, exactly. yeah. It's not great. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, it's been amazing speaking with you. I'm so pleased that you answered my email and, and came. It's a pleasure. How can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Um, I don't think people can really connect with me too much right now other than perhaps following me on Twitter at Kmore Gilbert. Yeah, perfect. That's really the only public um, social media or public forum. Are you tweeting much or here and there? Yeah, yeah. I normally tweet each day depending. My Twitter is basically just about Iran. Um, I, I sometimes stray from it, but it's not a personal Twitter per se. It's about what's going on in Iran. Last question, because I thought of this before but forgot to ask it. If sure. people want to learn a bit more about Iran in an accessible format, do you have any kind of um, podcasts, movies, books to recommend that um, that would be a good sort of primer? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm reading a book by a guy called Michael Axworthy uh, called Revolutionary Iran, I think. Um, although the title might not be exactly that. Um, there are myriad podcasts and, and audio books and things out there on Iran. Um, there are a number of TV channels in English and in Farsi um, looking at Iran, um, largely controlled by exiles abroad um, who are still writing and publishing about Iran from overseas from exile uh but you know there is a lot of content out there i just um, nothing springs to mind dramatically right now is the way to point people but that's all right um, we'll we'll have to follow you up on twitter (laughs) oh i mean i'm i'm not an authority on iran at all like i'm I'm oh come on i'm really not i'm just tweeting about stuff that's of interest to me often other political prisoners um developments within the judiciary developments within um the negotiations that are going on right now in vienna um, with the, the new regime, Raisi's presidency and the Americans and the Europeans, et cetera, over the new JCPOA, this kind of thing, um, political prisoners, deals uh, being made to exchange them, hostage diplomacy, Magnitsky, all that stuff that we've discussed now yeah. I'm tweeting about, but yeah. I'm not. it's certainly not a personal Twitter account in that I'm not telling you what I ate for breakfast or something. <laughs> yeah, which I think we, we get way too much of that on Instagram anyway. No, no one really needs to know that. <laughs> yes, exactly. There are some things, like I'm, I'm not about the overshare. Yeah. There are some things we just, like, you just don't need to know nah. and you probably don't want to know. So <laughs> I get it. You have a dog. I have a dog too. Great. Let's move on. Yeah, we all like avocado on toast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I've had three lattes this morning, so what? <laughs> Um, Kylie, thanks so much for joining me. It's just been like a a lovely conversation. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.